Well, good evening, friends, and welcome to this, our final evening of our short revival. And I'm certainly very grateful for the time I could have had with you. And thank you for each one who's been coming out so faithfully. And we trust that God's blessing will continue to rest upon the life and the ministry uh, of the congregation here. We've even got somebody from my home continent here tonight, from Kenya, a fellow African. <laughs> Welcome to you. Give her a hand. So I've got some support, at least I know. <laughs> uh, do pray for our ministry as we continue tomorrow night in the Christian Fellowship Center. That God will bless there. And then I go back to Alabama uh, on Sunday, for Sunday, and then on to Boston. And I'm told you've got to be careful of those guys from Boston. I'm not sure why. So we've got meetings there, and then back to Africa as we continue in this ministry of world evangelism. In June, I'll be going up to Uganda for meetings up there in that great country that has known so much suffering in the past, and yet I believe the body of Christ is growing. We're going to do pastoral uh, leadership courses there. And then on to Zimbabwe and other parts of Africa and now to Cambodia as we continue to reach out wherever God opens the door. And we are certainly praying that doors will continue to open so that indeed the word can go out and we can fulfill the call that God gave to us so long ago. And yet the gifts and callings are irrevocable. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't cancel or renegotiate. He calls us, and if he calls, he equips, and we can trust him. And I always like to tell people that I work for a very rich Jew, and he, his name is Jesus, and he knows how to manage the whole operation in which we are involved. But your prayers are highly valued as we go forth in Jesus' name. But thank you for the joy of being here and for coming so faithfully and we trust that God's blessing will continue to rest upon the life and the ministry of this congregation. <clears throat> now we're going to read tonight from Genesis uh, chapter 45. The book of Genesis chapter 45. Now if there's one book in the Bible that the devil despises, it's Genesis. You see, he doesn't mind too much what goes on in Malachi or Amos or Obadiah. But Genesis, the account of creation, the account of man, the account of the fall of man, and the account of marriage, it's all here. And so we find many will attack the book of Genesis. But I still find myself preferring to believe the account of creation in the book of Genesis than all the other so-called accounts of how we came here into this world because it stood the test of time and we can believe it with all of our hearts. But, but tonight we get to chapter 45 of the book of Genesis and my title for tonight is From Bitterness to Blessing as we see in this story. Uh, chapter 45, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while, Jonas, uh, while Joseph made himself known 
to his brothers. I would love to be in a fly on the wall to watch what happened there. What an experience it must have been. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed, or probably shocked in his presence. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. God shall, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. It was a time when they wouldn't talk to him out of jealousy, but now they began to speak to him with a different tone, of course. We're going to bow in a moment of prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit who is the one that interprets the word to translate it into all of our hearts. And we bless God for his faithfulness. <clears throat> Father, we thank you we can bow in your presence and call, call you Father because you sent your son into this world and that because you loved us so much that we should not perish but have everlasting life. We do know there was a price paid for this. It was the price of his own precious blood that he shed on Calvary's cross to draw each one of us unto himself. We thank you that no man cometh to the Father but through Jesus. We worship you for that fact. Now we come to pray for your blessing upon everyone that has gathered here tonight. You'll know the needs of each life, the problems, the pains, the issues that are at stake. Problems maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe with other issues, physical or social, whatever they may be. We come to place them all before you tonight. 
And we thank you that you're not untouched by the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. And because of that fact, we can have full access to the presence of the Father. Minister to every one of us, reach down into the depths of our souls, teach us anew the things we need to know that you long to impart, interpret, illuminate the sacred page we ask you, and may we leave tonight rejoicing in the glorious reality of your blessing and of your grace. Bless this church. Thank you for it, for the witness that it has been down through the years. Thank you for your precious servants who labor here so faithfully. And we ask that indeed each will know your special blessing like never before. Supply every need. Visit this place afresh with power from on high. Sprinkle your blood upon the lintel and the doorpost of this building that all who enter in might sense that we stand on holy ground and that God is here and he longs to pour out his richest blessing. We thank you for your grace that is sufficient. Lord, hear our prayers. We are living in climactic days, but how we thank you that you will have the final say and that you're on the throne and how we worship you for that fact in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I was reading the other day about the account of a certain boxer in this country by the name of Hurricane Carter. How many have heard of him? Yeah, he was quite a character, I believe. But he landed in prison, falsely accused, and was declared guilty of murder. And after 19 years in prison, the whole case was opened up again, and he was found not guilty and was released from prison. He was questioned once he was out of prison about how you felt about all that had happened, how you felt about the fact that he'd been so unjustly treated. Was he in any sense bitter because of what had happened and the 19 years of his life that had been taken away from him. He declared that he did not wish to become a victim of bitterness. He wanted to be free from that because it would achieve nothing. And as I read that, I was reminded of the story here that we have before us tonight. His name is Joseph. If ever there was a man that could have well been justified in being bitter, it was Joseph. But we find something happens here in chapter 45, as he has this incredible encounter with the very men, his own brothers, his own blood, that had betrayed him, that had thought they'd got rid of him. But God, you'll find again and again in the scriptures, but God was with him. Yes. And when he is with you, if God before us, who can be against us? And it is this that comes out again and again. When bitterness takes a root in your life, it's nearly impossible to deal with it. 
on the surface again. We offer a superficial forgiveness sometimes to those who have grieved us and hurt us and taken advantage of us and treated us poorly. It's the kind of forgiveness whereby I will forgive what you've done, but I'll never forget what you've done. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no root grows, no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. How true it is. And it's so easy to find ourselves in this kind of state. The greatest cause for depression is, I believe, bitterness. We need to take bitterness at its root before it springs up and twists your life to your life of misery and anger and all the rest that comes with it. It's interesting how the bitter soul always attempts to build alliances because the bitter person cannot keep the bitterness to himself. He wants others to share that negative, depressed feeling. H.G. Wells once declared in, a will, in his wild and bitter mood that if there were a personal God behind the shambles of the universe, he would spit in his face. Such was the deep-seated bitterness in his soul because he could not come to the place whereby he could believe in the living God. How tragic. How tragic to think. Joseph here is the victim of cruel circumstances. Um, but actually, he's the victor of conquering circumstances. That's the difference. Many today are victims of cruel circumstances. And uh, uh, bitterness has a way of getting hold of us, and it can spread itself like uh, into revenge, a feeling of revenge, uh, holding a grudge, uh, resentment. And there are those that go through life, and deep down, it might have happened 40 years ago, somehow you experienced some kind of injustice and some cruelty from someone else, and it has left a deep wound within your soul, and there is pain on the inside which no one knows about, and you've been living with it for years. You were abused by your own father. You were mistreated in your family. Someone died and you were left out of the will. You were not granted the job that you wanted in you for your career. Or something happened and something left you hurting. Longing to find a way to get your own back at what has been done to you by the selfishness of others. Many live with unforgiveness in their lives. You've gone through a bitter divorce and how cruel it has been, and how unfair it has been, and it has left you in torn between different emotions. Somehow you can't get through it, and it binds you. You can't grow, and you can't be the kind of Christian you want to be because of what's happened, what's happened in the past. And the devil becomes a master at reminding you of the past. 
Now let me tell you something. When the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. His future is not going to be the most pleasant thing. You see, we have to face this, friends. You can't run away from it because I'll tell you one thing. Your problems will run faster than you can run. They'll catch you out again and again. We've got to find a way. And here we have a, a perfect example of Joseph. He's the second youngest of 12 brothers. He's only 17 at one stage. His mother Rachel is dead. His father is Jacob. He enjoyed unusual favor with his father when the father made for him a coat of many colors. That coat was usually had to go to the blessing of the firstborn. And here it goes to Joseph, although the others were stepbrothers. But this aroused all kinds of tensions within that home. The fellowship was broken. The, the time came when the brothers refused to even speak to the own brothers. And I know homes tonight where families will not speak to each other. Overall, that's happened in the past. And that's how we live. This is how he had to live. <laughs> he was given special gifts. He would have dreams. And he would dream about different ways in which his brothers would eventually and family members would bow down before him. And this didn't, this didn't exactly impress his brothers. You see. And this tormented and aggravated the atmosphere and the tension within those walls of that home. Those whom he dreamt of now became not dreamers but schemers. To find a way to get rid of him, to get him out of their lives, he became a thorn in the flesh in that home. It was a very sad home. Isn't that true today? Home after home has these deep entrenched attitudes and spirits that has broken husband and wife, broken parents and children, and all we exist. And there's a deep root of bitterness within ourselves. Oh, we disguise it. We camouflage it, but it's there. And you wonder why you don't grow in your Christian life. Because somehow a stronghold has been built there and a stronghold becomes the base from which the enemy operates to shoot his arrows into our lives and we'll never grow until we deal with that which has bound us for so long. There were a number of reasons for his bitterness and in many ways he could have justified himself for being bitter when you think of what happened to him. For instance, there was the betrayal of his own family, his own brothers. Now, betrayal is what others do to you. Bitterness is what you do to yourself. But he was betrayed. You can imagine the grief through which he went when he realized what his brothers had done in chapter 37, verse 26 to 28. They said, he is no prophet to us. Let's sell him. Let's make some money out of this deal and sell him to those Ishmaelites who will take him down to Egypt and we'll never have to worry about him again. Sounds like a good deal. They certainly thought this was the way to get rid of this anxiety in our homes, in our lives. And 
he sent. Worse than that, they come and tell the father a lie about what happened. In fact, they didn't even tell him. They allowed him to draw a false conclusion, if you read through it. That the bro your, your son that you loved so much, that you favored us, uh, with us, uh, yes, his garment, it's been stained with blood. They killed a, a lamb or a goat and then spread, sprinkled it with blood. And the only conclusion the grieving father could draw was, an animal has done this to him. He's dead. I've lost my firstborn. And for 20 years, he lived a life of misery based upon a lie. What a way to live. And there are people tonight that are living on a life based on a lie. Because we can't face the truth. We've been deceived at the innermost parts of our lives. The brothers pushed this under the carpet. They were convinced it was all over now. We'll never hear of Joseph again. But there was one thing they forgot. God was with Joseph. And he remembers his own. He knows what's right and what's wrong. He is the center of truth. Deceitfulness has never come into his plan. It's all walking in the light. But these brothers now walked for 20 years, living a lie. Jacob lives for 20 years in misery and heartbreak upon the basis of a lie. What a way to live. It certainly shattered many dreams. It certainly disturbed him. It robbed him of so much. Exactly the way the enemy operates, friends. And we see it here so clearly. <clears throat> they silenced their consciences. The fate of Joseph now was unknown and hopefully forgotten. He'd become a slave in Egypt. He'd live in another culture. He'd live in it with another language. And as he lived there, the father's favor meant nothing. God's favor was a mere mockery. Where's God now? When you have to live under these circumstances, thanks to the cruelty of someone else. You know, in Genesis 39 and through to verse 2 and 6, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 5, the Lord's blessing was... On Joseph. So what happens, friends? He lands in Egypt, and God's favor was still upon this man. Yes. And it says here, the Lord's blessing was upon him. Now, little did he know that when God blesses you, it can become a very dangerous time in your life. Because not only was there the betrayal of his family, but also the betrayal of a false lover. He met Potiphar's wife, and she was one of those kind of women that knew how to seduce, that knew how to bring people into bondage and to destroy homes. Genesis 39, 2 to 4, and 7 through to 19, 
we find that God was still with Joseph in that home. And here comes the temptation, the subtlety of the seduction that came his way. In chapter 39, look at him for a moment. He's a young, handsome man. He's in a faraway country, according to 39 verse 1. Verse 11, no one was in the house. No one will ever know. Take a chance, you lonely. She pretended she was committed to him. He, she would have the power to get him out of any kind of trouble. The only thing she didn't bargain on was that this man was afraid of sinning against God. That made him quite a different man in those days, as it is today. And he found himself here in serious trouble. Temptation came. And as a result of this, he is in shackles in a dungeon for a crime he never committed. He paid the price of cruel injustice the victim of evil plans and evil rejection. You talk about pain. You talk about a feeling of betrayal as he landed in that pit again and the devil says, where's your God now? Look what's happened to you. I thought God blessed you. I thought the Lord was with you. There are times when we go through the dark experiences in life and we feel God has forsaken us and the devil says God is a liar he says he's a God of love look what he's done to you and our hearts get hard and bitterness creeps in and lodges itself deep down we buy this resentment towards others and you hold it there friends and it begins to hold you Verse 20, but the Lord was with Joseph. The interesting thing was, friends, although you have this word here, there was no outward sign that God was with him. That's how faith works. Faith does not work the way we would like it to work. Can I believe in a God I cannot see? Can I believe in a God whose ways are higher than my ways? Who allows things in my life not to destroy me, not to punish me, but to teach me the deepest lessons of the Christian life by which I will grow. As I said, the other, was it last night? Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Can you trust him when the night is as dark as it possibly could be? It comes our way. The betrayal of a so-called lover. <clears throat> How tragic for a man to go through that. Then there was also a betrayal from a friend. Here's Joseph, he's in prison and the, uh, he's got favor with those in charge of the prison. And uh, two others find themselves in prison one day. They were the baker and the butler of the king's court. And he befriends them. But one morning these guys wake up 
and they've all had a dream. Now remember one thing. Joseph had the gift of interpreting dreams. Little did he know the role that that gift would play in his life. And he interprets for the dreams, and the baker finds himself having to be hanged. But the butler is released. And Joseph says something to him, and I've often wondered if it was right or wrong. But Joseph said to him, please remember me. Remind Pharaoh about me. Remind Pharaoh it was me he interpreted your dreams. Do you know what? He went through the dark tunnel of delay as he waited upon God to redeem the situation. Two years. Where's God now? He's forgotten me. It felt like that, friends. That's what he was going through. How can I trust a God like that? He went through these three heartbreaks in his life. He had to die to his family. He had to die to his reputation. He had to live, excuse me, being falsely accused. His only friend he had in the entire world betrayed him. Forgot about him. And he finds himself in that dark dungeon, friends. Not a soul in the world knows where Joseph was. No one could help him. But God had not forgotten him. I just find that amazing. That's the God of the Bible, friends. That's the God who sent Jesus Christ into this world. That's the God that says to you tonight, you are of supreme importance in my life. You are the apple of my eye. I cannot forsake you. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Will you trust me? Well, Joseph had nothing else to trust him. And man's extremity became God's opportunity. Can you trust him? Well, here it was. He had no choice. It says in Psalm 105, verse 19, till the Lord proved him true. How did Joseph respond to all this unjust treatment? How did he respond to his circumstances? You see, it's not the circumstances that causes you to grow. It's how you respond to those circumstances. You can't get better. That's the natural reaction. That's the carnal way to go. I'll never forgive that man. I'll never speak to that person again. Are there people that you won't speak to? then you've got revenge in your heart. You've got bitterness in your soul. And bitterness will kill you. It's self-destructive. God did not make you to be bitter. He wants to bring us out of that kind of situation, friends, to be blessed. Joseph goes through 20 years of hell. But God is with him. You see, God doesn't always reason in time schedules like we do. We'd like to press a button and tomorrow morning the money will come in. (laughs) 
and the job will be granted. But he's trying to say, can you still trust me even things don't go the way you want to go? You know why? Because his ways are higher than our ways. But his ways are perfect. Now, the question is, how did Joseph respond? I want to give you five ways that he responded, which I find so helpful and so practical, because we all go through this, if we're going to be honest. Times when either someone else has hurt you or you've gone through life and the blows have fallen, and you can't understand what God is doing. I went through that. I got a call one day to tell me my wife had been killed in a car wreck. My wife of 22 years. And I found myself with three children standing at that open grave. And the question was, where's God now? Why does he allow a thing like this to happen? What have I done to deserve this? Well, we, deserve, we get far more than what we really deserve, if we think of it. But we go through these times. But I want to tell you tonight, friends, these can be the most creative times in your life if you respond to God and not to the flesh and certainly not to the devil. Because he's active at that time. Very active. Now, some choices had to be made. In other words, Joseph had to use that one gift that God has given to all of us, your free will. You use it. You can choose. The first choice was to live in the future and not in the past. To live for the future and not the past. Well, past, as you say. Interesting, in Genesis 41, verse 50 to 52, he had two sons. And uh, each one of their names had particular significance. Manasseh, uh, his name here means, God has caused me to forget all my troubles and all my father's house. That's the name of his one son. They were troubles, yes. You couldn't deny them. They were there. The facts were there, friends. But God has caused me to forget those things that happened in the past. Ephraim, the next son, meant God has made me to be fruitful in the land of my suffering. That's quite a promise, isn't it? God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That's in Genesis 41, verses 50 and 52. Uh, Paul Billheim has written a book, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. What a blessing they can be. Joseph refused to allow his past to be the prison through which he would view his life. His past would not be allowed to color and destroy any hope of being fruitful in the present or in the future. My friends, we so allow our pasts to virtually dictate our lifestyles and run our lives. I think it was Winston Churchill that made the statement, um, if we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. How true it is. God wants to make your life fruitful, and very often it's the crushed grape that issues the sweet wine. It can only come that way. He chose to live in the future 
and not in the past, that God is still in control and he will guide me for tomorrow. And my tomorrow is only in his hands because they're certainly not in ours. You've got no control there. The second is he chose to release his perpetrators. Chapter 45, verse 1 through to 2. I often wonder why Joseph wept. It says he wept uh, hot tears. Maybe they were tears of regret of what might have been uh, in his life. Or tears of joy over the new found forgiveness he had found had been born in his heart. That must have taken a supernatural work. But that's what the Holy Spirit is, friends. He is the God of the supernatural. He's able to do what we can't do for ourselves. <clears throat> the healing process had already taken place. The emotion came as a torrent and it prepared him for the moment of truth with his brothers. Chapter 45, verse 4, 5, and 7. When he chose, that was the choice, to release his brothers from the crime that they had committed. It would have been a golden opportunity to take revenge. It'd been, it would have been a wonderful feeling to get his own back on the years that his life had been wasted, thanks to them. But he never took it. He never took it. He never allowed what had happened in the past to dictate his actions in the present. Number three, he chose to bring God into the equation. Oh, the fight had been between him and his brothers. But the Bible says here in chapter 45, verses 5 and eight, or 18, that God was with him. That God was there. Now, the moment you bring God into any equation, friends, he's not going to step backwards. He's going to use his sovereign powers to introduce and implement his eternal purposes. Because we see how that the evil that the brothers had done turned out to be a divine plan. Not that evil results in a, God plan, a divine plan, but when evil is there, God is able yes. to bring good out of it. You take the story of the cross where Jesus died for you and me. Sin sends Christ to the cross. But from the cross he conquers sin. He turns it around in his supernatural way. <clears throat> he knew that God had a way of redeeming what had happened. I think we see this in many parts in the Bible. There's Joseph in prison. There's Israel in Egypt in slavery until the day came when God had de declared they would come out. We see the battles against the Philistines. We think of David's affair with Bathsheba and ultimately the cross. All conform, confirm that some pretty ugly circumstances can be wovenly, woven seamlessly into a divine plan. Romans 8:28, which I trust is one of our favorite verses, for we know that all things work together for good 
to them that love God. But then you'll find a very special verse in verse 19 of the chapter, and I want you to look at for a moment. Verse 19. Uh, is it verse 19? Just a moment. 41, I think, 19. Let me just get it. Uh, 50, sorry, 50, verse 19. Where is it? Yeah. Look at it. 50, verse 19. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. I looked at that verse and I just marvel at it. What does that mean? To be in the place of God. The safest place in the world. The only place to live. Are we in the place of God? Or are we in our own little world and the cocoon we've spun around ourselves? The place of God? Where evil strategies have to go. We peace and satisfaction we come to know. We living waters flow and the fruits of the Spirit grow to be in the place of God. We're not born there, friends. It doesn't come through even attending a church. But it comes when you come to the place when you let go of that which has bound you for so long and you step by faith into the eternal presence of the living God and allow your life to be governed and regulated and garrisoned by God. It'll mean goodbye to the old life. It'll be a life of trust and faith. But I can tell you tonight, if I had a thousand lives to live, I'd live every one for Jesus Christ Amen. and to follow him. He brings God into the equation. He, number four, he chooses to replace injustice with blessing. Not a curse which those brothers deserved. He didn't grant them what they deserved, friends. He granted them what they never deserved. And that's exactly what grace is all about. Uh, someone said, when I meet God one day, I'm going to ask that he exercises judgment on me, a justice on me. In which case, someone said, you'll go straight to hell. We call for mercy because, you see, justice makes us all guilty. We've all violated the laws of God. We plead mercy. And mercy is great and free. He's a God of mercy. How we thank God for that. He offers them this wonderful invitation to return with their father. To take the blessings of security and prosperity and comfort. He takes the, the time to share with them the blessings that God had given to them in spite of his impossible, impossible circumstances. Only God could have done that. There is no way. When he appeared before Pharaoh and Pharaoh had, had a dream, by the way, and once again, his gifts made way for the man. His gift of interpreting of dreams. God uses your gift in his own special way to fulfill his purposes. That's why he gave it to you, because we're going to be held accountable for what we've done with the gifts, 
what we've done with our lives. Life goes by so rapidly, it's unbelievable. I heard the story of a Christian missionary out in one of the Muslim countries whereby the neighbor next door to him said to this Christian missionary, I curse you. I curse your wife. I curse your family. I curse your God. I curse your home in which you live. I curse the car that you drive. I curse everything about you. Such was the hatred. And he replied and said, I bless you with the love of Jesus. I bless your home. I bless your wife. I bless your family. I bless your children. I bless the car that you drive. I bless the road you walk. That's the difference, friends. God brings a change. Others may curse us. But Jesus took the curse. And he's able to bless you tonight. Why? Because he loves us? Of course. We haven't deserved it, have we? We're not perfect, are we? Anybody perfect yet tonight? Remember, Pastor asked that question. Anybody perfect in the congregation? Dead quiet. Anybody perfect here? And a little man raised his hand. He says, you perfect? He says, no, but I'm standing proxy for my wife's first husband. Some of you will get the joke tomorrow. And then in the fifth place, he chose not to retaliate. Genesis 45, verse 8. 9 to 28 and Genesis 50 verse 15 to 20. After 20 years of having been sold into slavery, he was now reconciled with his family. It had been a long time. It had been a long wait. Why did he not retaliate? Why? You see, if he did, he'd be taking the place of God. Vengeance is God's business, not ours. You cannot play God with the people who have wronged you. It's God's work to bring people to justice. It's our business to forgive and release. And that's the challenge. Bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting your enemy to die. Forgiveness is both an act and a process. What a process. Because the devil brings it back. Forgiveness is an act of self-healing. And when you forgive others, you heal yourself. The best example we can ever have is Jesus Christ. Yes. He was cruelly treated, betrayed by his own family, his own disciples. He was betrayed by the laws of the day. He was betrayed by the religion of the day. He went through pain like no human being possibly has ever gone through. The laws were violated to get him crucified. 
one word of objection or reference to the ecclesiastical or Jewish law would have had him released. But he never took that opportunity. He went as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. Not to pay for his own crimes, but for ours. To take our place. And the pain was so horrific that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by God. He paid that price. The only person God ever forsook was his own son. Because he would never forsake us. And Jesus paid that price we should pay. So that in turn, we can forgive others as he has forgiven us. Is there somebody you've got to forgive, my friend? It might be a, a letter you have to send. It might be a call that you have to make. Don't live with unsettled debt in your life. Clear it. So you can face God. If they don't forgive you, that's their business. Get it settled. I want to read you something before I close. And I'm going to read it twice so that we can understand what it means. It's a, a letter. Let's just look at it. O oh Lord, remember not only the men and women of good will, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have afflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of this suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged by you, let all these fruits that you have borne be their forgiveness. And amen was written at the end. This was a letter, and this is where the significance comes. This was a letter found in the pocket of a dead child in Ravensbrück concentration camp. That gives a different light on the letter, doesn't it? Let me read it now in the light of that. A young child had written this and put it into his pocket, and then he was slaughtered. Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they have afflicted upon us. Instead, remember the fruits we have borne because of this suffering. Our fellowship, our loyalty to one another, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart that has grown from this trouble. When our persecutors come to be judged, before you, let all these fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Amen. You talk about a heart that's been released. That was his dying words. His dying words. That's how he was remembered. a certain German man who'd worked in those concentration camps and had inflicted unbelievable suffering and pain to the Jews in those camps. 
He was dying in a hospital ward in West Germany. And as his pulse would become weak, he asked the nurse to find, if it's possible, a Jew in the hospital. Are there any, is there any Jewish person in this hospital? She said she would check. And there was a man in another ward. He was a Jew. He said, could you call that person to my bedside? I want forgiveness before I die. And he called the man to come to his bedside. This man was guilty of so much cruelty. And he looked into the eyes of this Jewish man who stood next to him, who was told about the situation that here was a German man who had worked in the concentration camps. And the man was dying. And he said, before I die, I want to feel forgiven. The Jewish man said, I'm afraid I cannot forgive you. And he had to die unforgiven. There are many tonight that will die unforgiven. And the trouble is we don't know when we're going to die. We need to die with our hearts clean and with that glorious assurance when the hour of accountability comes. We can look into the face of our master and we can know it's all clear. It's all clear. It's only the blood of Jesus can wash our hearts clean, friends. Nothing else can. No, mer no merits can counterbalance the weight of sin in our lives. None. Jesus came. And he balanced the scales for you and for me. And I would invite you tonight if your sins are not forgiven, let Jesus forgive them. If you know you're holding something in your life and there are issues in your life you've never faced, you've covered them up and lived with them and they've left a heartache, let them go. Bring them to the cross. And let Jesus deal with them and set you free. And he will, because that's the work of Christ on the cross. Do you feel you can do that tonight? Or are you going to go out and live with unforgiveness in your heart. It's the worst thing you can do to yourself.